2: I'm a respiratory physician, what you call on the other side of the Atlantic, a criminologist. I have long COVID. I have been off work with it since November 2020, and I also have had a vaccine injury. I'm also an advocate for invisible illness sufferers in the social media, but also the mainstream media space, and I'm also involved in researching the totting abnormalities in long COVID, but also in other linked diseases, including vaccine injury, along with Professor Recia Pretorius and Professor Doug Kell.
3: A huge part of why I wanted to do an episode on vaccine injury is ultimately I, as a substance use disorder counselor, I work with basically populations that society has left behind And also a percentage of people that society has deemed like acceptable collateral damage. Oftentimes, like that is what happens to the disabled people with chronic, complicated illnesses that where there isn't a lot of interest in research and treatment, whether that's our homeless, we have a huge number of people in society that routinely get left behind and discarded and their interests and their stories basically remaining in the margins. And I think, you know, long COVID is absolutely one of those things. And also as somebody that has dealt with autoimmune disorders, I have noticed, and this started actually a while back with the Gardasil vaccine, was the first time where I heard some people in the autoimmune community saying that it causes POTS. And POTS is an acronym for uh, Dr. Asad Khan. You might be better at explaining what um, POTS is for people, but um, it's what is the yeah. acronym?
2: Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome. So syndrome means a collection of symptoms. Postural means related to your position. In the case of POTS, what it means is that your symptoms are worse when you are upright. Orthostatic, referring to the upright position. And tachycardia means rapid heart rate. So the definition of POTS is if your heart rate goes up by 30 beats or more, when you move from the lying down position to the standing up position, then you are deemed to have pot. But it's a lot more than that. The rapid rate is not the only feature of it. Uh, people can get chest pain, they can get nausea, they get dizzy. Sometimes they can actually lose consciousness. So there's lots and lots of other symptoms, but it's a disorder of the autonomic nervous system, which is your sort of unconscious nervous system that controls the bodily functions.
3: Yes. Thank you for that. So that was the first time that I started hearing about vaccine injury within the chronic illness community. And these were all people that were very pro vaccine. So I knew that this wasn't necessarily an issue of somebody that was necessarily, I guess I should say, biased. And so that was probably the first time that I heard of vaccine injury and started hearing accounts of vaccine injury was with a, with the Gardasil rollout in specific populations. And, and what made me interested in the vaccine injury, especially among the long COVID community, was also hearing about POTS being one of the more common symptoms. Everyone's symptoms with this is very different. So Again, thanks to both our guests for coming on and talking about their experience. And that is my initial blurb.
0: Emmanuel, did you want to talk about your experiences or your story? Is that a good place to start?
1: Yeah, I'm Emmanuel Spherius. I've also worked in the substance use field. I founded a nonprofit called Dance Safe 25 years ago. That's the oldest and yes. largest peer-based drug education and harm reduction service provider. In the u.s if not the world lately i helped develop uh, new and improved fentanyl testing strips because that for people who are not opioid users really they're very helpful in detecting fentanyl contamination and we're selling like a million a month now that's is a little bit about my professional career but what happened to me is last january 4th i got a moderna covid booster shot and Four days later, I started feeling pain in my proximal limbs. That means the part of your limbs closest to your torso, shoulders, hips, glutes, hamstrings, a little bit into the neck. Ten days after that, so it's getting progressively worse. Ten days after that, I woke up unable to lift my legs more than an inch off the floor. Uh, couldn't lift my arms more than about 45 degrees and went to the emergency room. And they diagnosed me with a vaccine-induced myositis because my blood work showed inflammation markers that were high, including muscle breakdown, and put me on high-dose prednisone, 40 milligrams, and you know, referred me to a rheumatologist. I responded really well to the prednisone, that the pain went away. But of course, prednisone isn't something that's good to take very long. And I've now been on it nine months, down to seven milligrams and struggling with it because of the emotional, (laughs) uh, mental side effects of being on it. But seven milligrams now from 40 seems to be better. Basically, the prednisone took care of the symptoms, uh, but I wasn't, for the first three or four months, I wasn't able to get below about 25 milligrams without the symptoms coming back. And then maybe about four months in, things started getting better. And I've been able to taper the theory. I've been to the Mayo Clinic um, because I don't have any of the classic myositis, what they might call the constitutional myositis, where they can identify an autoantibody and I'm doing much better than people that have constitutional myositis. So the theory that they told me at the Mayo Clinic is that because the mRNA vaccines temporarily hijack your muscle cells, causing them to produce the spike proteins, your you know, body normally is supposed to make antibodies for that spike protein. But in my case, my body saw my muscle cells as the enemy since they were producing the spike protein and created antibodies, at least some, coded for my muscle cells. And that like the good antibodies, the ones that you want the vaccine to produce, fade after about six months. Mine probably have faded by now. And the only thing I'm struggling with is to get off the prednisone. But that's just a theory, right? I tried to find a place to save my blood because I was told they're looking for a particular autoantibody, because according to the rheumatologist the Mayo Clinic, uh, I'm not the only one. There's thousands of people who are developing vaccine-induced myal muscle-related diseases, mostly autoimmune. And if there's an autoantibody, they want to find it. So I almost saved and froze my blood so that I can prove, because within a month here, I'm going to apply to the Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund, which is actually called the Pandemic Countermeasures Compensation Fund. They moved the COVID vaccine into its own category called the Countermeasures Compensation Fund, anticipating that there would be people that would have suffer vaccine injury. And if you know, you have to prove that it was from the vaccine. I think I'm a shoe in to get my medical expenses reimbursed because I have a diagnosis from the emergency room and from the Mayo Clinic. But if I had my blood frozen and back when those antibodies theoretically were high in my blood and they found the, anti- the auto-antibody causing this syndrome that would be the slam dunk, right? I, I, then I could test my blood after they know what they're looking for and say, look, I've got a mRNA vaccine auto-induced autoantibody in my blood. Uh, but I didn't get my blood frozen. I couldn't find a place that would uh, do it. But uh, I should also mention, I was right in there in social media and with all my friends advocating for people to get vaccinated. I was, in no way was I anti-vaccine. And even now, epidemiologically, I would say and still believe that the COVID vaccines have saved millions of lives, but I guess the lesson I've learned here is that it's those of us who do get vaccine injuries that are the victims, not just from the injury, but from the polarization around vaccines in our culture, there is mm-hmm. not enough research that's being Done. People like me are being uh, dismissed. Even the Mayo Clinic said they got pressure, the doctors at the Mayo Clinic, not to ascribe the symptoms to the vaccine because of the politics around it. Uh, also, here in Albuquerque, right in New- where I live, my rheumatologist is one of a dozen in the state, maybe a little more. She's one of eight in the Presbyterian healthcare system. She has six patients with vaccine-induced myalgias, and she hasn't reported them. And if you don't report vaccine injuries, then in, not only does you know, the media not know about it, want to cover it, but researchers can't do studies and find out what's going on. There's pressure not even to report vaccine injuries. I'm one of them. I was not reported. And I, I clearly got a vaccine-induced myalgia that has changed my life more than anything ever. So that's my story and where I stand on this. We need to be talking about this more. And so thank you for doing the show. I just had a number of observations
2: to make and before I forget. (laughs) I think what comes out for me there is how exhausting it is for the patient to have to justify that this happened to them. It should not be like that it should not require having to freeze your blood and prove that you had a certain antibody because you had the vaccine and then after that you became ill. And it should all be in the history, it should be evident. What if that autoantibody wasn't present? That doesn't mean that this isn't what happened to you. And a number of other points that you made about the underreporting and that's exactly what happened to me. My vaccine injury hasn't been reported. I don't know a single person in my acquaintances who has had a vaccine injury who has had it reported and that further adds to this narrative that vaccine injury is rare. Now, once we've done the maths and everybody's reported, it might still be rare, but the point I'm trying to make here is that there, anecdotally at least, seems to be gross underreporting, reporting And We are the people who went and had the vaccine. We did our civic duty. We are definitely not anti-vax, quite the opposite. We did it because we were told that this was the right thing to do. And whilst I do agree that the vaccine definitely attenuated the severity of the illness and definitely have saved lots and lots of lives, what is questionable is what the vaccines are doing right now, because the vaccines that we have available right now, they aren't necessarily active against the ongoing variants. Uh, right,
3: They're behind.
2: Yeah. And they we know that the vaccines, depends on which study you look at, they may reduce the risk of long COVID by a small percentage but they don't stop transmission of the illness. Um, so when the, the benefits are marginal, one has to really question the risk-benefit ratio. And until we have adequate reporting, until we have proper research that will help us understand who is at risk of vaccine injury so that those people can be treated with more care and also using that information to develop better vaccines until we right. approach this like we would any other illness we can't really make that risk benefit judgment
4: do they know what they would have to do to adjust the vaccine so that it doesn't cause myocarditis no so they take that risk with every vaccine
3: i think one of the polarization around vaccination has been that Vaccines are always safe or they're never safe. Mm -hmm. That's the polarization we have in the public sphere about vaccines. And the reality is that vaccines are like any drug. You have patient selection, you have pros, you have cons, and you have contraindications. Even the safest drug is going to have somebody that can't take it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think paracetamol, a simple painkiller, if you use it in the wrong quantity, or if a person with, say, liver disease uses it in even normal quantity, it can be fatal. Now, that doesn't mean paracetamol is bad. Right. Um, And vaccines are just another drug. Yes. And we have this religiosity around them, which is completely unwarranted, just because they, on a population level, have historically had... Huge benefits doesn't mean that they're perfect. And that needs to be acknowledged so that we can develop better vaccines. And and we can identify the people who might be at greater risk of developing these side effects, that a different approach might be taken with them. Another thing I have great issue with is the disbelief and the gaslight. And it can go to ridiculous extents. One of the pushbacks I received when I volunteered that I had a vaccine injury was that, how do you know that the vaccinator at the time that she gave you the vaccine might not have been asymptomatic with COVID and transmitted it to you? And I just thought, what happened to listening to the patient? Having an invisible illness such as long COVID or ME, or fibromyalgia, or an autoimmune disease, in itself, it's a very isolating and defeating experience. Try having Jeez. vaccine injury on top of that, it's the gaslighting is just immense. People are struggling to even get a diagnosis, never mind any proper investigation or treatment. We do have a fund in the UK as well call the vaccine damage payment. And again, I know a handful of people who've been successful, and one has to really question without sounding conspiratorial, why is this the case? Why are we not curious? Why are we not going, okay, a drug was introduced in a moment of crisis. People must have done the best they could to develop this. But there are clearly these problems occurring. Let's look into this so that we can do better. I just fail to understand what's happened to medicine, why we have this worship of vaccines that is unquestioning. Because I think what this does is if we keep saying, this is 100% safe, no harm can come of this. No, this did not happen to you. That will only add add fuel to the anti-vax milk because they will say, you know what, something's been hidden here. And I can understand that position, because we're not being transparent about this.
0: Yeah, it it strikes me, I guess, as a layman listening to this, that it's all incredibly complicated (laughs) and nuanced. And I just am reminded of the Fight Club thing. The scene where he talks about the job that he does, a sort of insurance risk assessment with the car company, and that the cost of the recall has to be factored into Or against the cost of all the court cases and whichever one is cheaper is the one that you do. And so is this new or is this just business as usual that like you said that perhaps the vaccine injuries are rare, but what does rare mean? And what percentage has been designated as an acceptable risk by? others?
1: I think what's happened is that the the vaccine injuries are not rare enough that they didn't set up a vaccine injury compensation fund, right? That compensation fund has been around for a long time and they created it precisely to protect the pharmaceuticals from being overrun with lawsuits by people who were injured by vaccines. They wanted to move all of those lawsuits forbidding people to sue the pharmaceuticals by allowing them to appeal to get compensation through a government fund. So the government is essentially subsidizing or protecting the pharmaceuticals. And look, when I think about it, I might agree with that because it would bankrupt the pharmaceutical companies who were making vaccines if they were bombarded with lawsuits. So rare, maybe nobody knows, but not rare enough that they didn't need protection from lawsuits. And the way I see the problem here. It's very similar to the problem around substance use and public health messaging in our society. I've been a a harm reduction and drug policy firm activist for 25 years and have advocated for the truth-telling regarding the impacts, positive as well as negative, of various psychoactive drugs. But in order to lower the a number of people, young people, who choose to use drugs. The prevention strategy has been to exaggerate and lie about the, the dangers of drugs. And we've shown that hasn't worked, and thank goodness harm reduction and messaging is slightly improving. But I think the same thing goes on in public health with regard to vaccines. If you tell people the truth, about what's happening to those of us who are receiving injury it will make people hesitate to get vaccinated and so they don't want to publicize that and again that's i think that's a conscious decision made by public health professionals they're basically right. writing those of us off who are getting injured and be, because we need the research to be able to treat the illnesses that we have and to prevent them in other people and if we're not truthful about that. But I understand their perspective. Look at all the anti-vaxxers out there. But I think even that movement, right? I had one doctor tell me that the myth that the flu vaccine spreads the flu, that it's a conspiracy to actually spread the flu around and then sell more vaccines, right? That belief came from the fact that public health didn't tell people that they have a 30% chance of getting flu-like symptoms when they get the flu vaccine. So you have all these people who say, the only people I know who got the flu were the people who got vaccinated. But in fact, they were just getting a few days of flu-like symptoms because the vaccine does that. And so their decision not to tell people the truth about the risk of those temporary symptoms led to this conspiracy culture and the anti-vax movement has a long longer much longer history to the anti-vax movement but my, my only point is we should favor the truth above everything
4: yes we started, but then one wonders none of this came out around polio vaccine do you know why um, that was you uniformly administered why didn't we hear anything about this with the other vaccines? Measles, mumps, chicken pox, polio. Have they suppressed this all the time? Or were those others different? Those other vaccines different?
2: Uh, it's been there since we've had vaccines. And mm-hmm. the polio vaccine can, in some cases, give a polio-like picture. And the measles vaccine can give a sort of measles and type reaction. And so it, it, it was always there. I am interested in what Emmanuel said about the lack of nuance in public health messaging. And I can partly see that where they feel that they can't afford to have that because it will scare people off. But then uh, it will unfortunately give rise to certain assumptions and conclusions that aren't true. So there is that side of it as well. I guess what was different this time, and this is just my observation, interpretation was that this happened at a huge scale, unprecedented. So many people have not been vaccinated in such a short space of time. I think the figure is about two and a half times the population of the earth is the number of vaccine donors that have been delivered in the space of a few years. So was just a lot more out there in the public domain, where, for example, with flu, you hear about the flu vaccine and you must get the flu vaccine when it's flu season. When it other vaccines, then obviously that messaging is targeted at children or parents of children. Whereas it, this was a message for everyone. You must all go and get vaccinated straight yes. away. You must all go and get your boosters. So I think the messaging was... A lot more concentrated and therefore these stories probably got a lot more concentrated as well that's just my observation so I, I do think that is where one of the differences lies as in you've got a different context globally but also where before you had a trickle of these things constantly now you've got a huge number
0: and even if it is rare in absolute terms it's still a lot it's a great point emmanuel did, did you want to respond to any of that
1: Yeah, there were some other pieces of this (laughs) that I can talk about, which is I I didn't get a a reaction to the original vaccine. I got the original series of two vaccines, and they first came out and had no side effects at all. It was totally fine. I even tested my blood with antibody strips and that showed that I had developed antibodies, and that made me feel really comfortable about the vaccine, that I was protected enough, uh, et cetera. And then I, I started reading about original antigenic sin, mm-hmm. which is a concept where if you vaccinate people against a pathogen that mutates, and especially if you keep vaccinating them against that same original virus, or, Uh, that has now mutated so that it doesn't exist anymore, right? The original spike protein hasn't existed in years. You can overtrain a person's immune system to where they become less able to fight off the newer mutated version because their immune system is trained on the version that doesn't exist. And so... The promise of the mRNA vaccines was that we could update these things really quickly to follow the, mu- the, the mutations of COVID, right? But they didn't do it. And one has to wonder if they didn't do it because they had millions of the previous vaccines already made and they wanted to sell them. But in any case, I didn't get boosted until the updated booster appeared. And then I was still complaining I don't to like to who people on social media and I wrote letters that why is it only why is it 50-50? Why is it 50% omicron and 50% the original? There was no reason to include 50% of the original spike protein in the the booster the, they call it the bivalent one that it didn't exist. But nonetheless it was the only one available and I had been screaming that when are they going to update these vaccines? I'm not going to get boosted with the old one but Once the bivalent one became available and it became clear to me they weren't going to make one that was 100% omicron, I said, all right, I'm going to go do it. And I look back at that decision that I made now and just who would have thought that would happen to me. I was the one doing all the research and educating my friends and my following a semi-public figure. I have a podcast on drugs. And I even did one about the pandemic and people should get vaccinated, right? I have a big following. For this, the irony is not lost on me that uh, I got a vaccine injury and now I just keep my mouth shut. Like I don't say anything to anyone anymore. I'm not going to tell anyone whether they should get vaccinated. The, the other piece of this though is that I was under a lot of stress when I got that booster. There was really difficult work-related stuff going on, emotional difficult. I was, my doctors believe that it played a role. If I didn't have a recommendation to people, like if you're going to get vaccinated, just do not do it at a time when you are under undue stress. That or maybe sick. Or sick. Yeah. That is stress. Stress is, right. it, I've, I've learned, prednisone has taught me this because in taking away my body's ability to make cortisol and trying to taper, off of this synthetic cortisol, you you don't have the resiliency to handle stress. And now I know more than ever what stress is. It's not just when you worry. Anything that increases your body's need for energy is stressful. So big carbohydrate meal is stressful. Exercise, which is good for reducing long-term stress, is stressful. Mm -hmm. And Having to concentrate, even if you're not worried about something, that is stressful. There's so many things I cannot do right now. Again, this is about cortisol and getting off prednisone, maybe not so much the vaccine, but holy cow, has I, have I learned uh, things about my body.
3: I will go to Dr. Asad Khan, but one of the things that I'll also point out is that a lot of people don't know some of the finer details in vaccine and vaccine platforms. Right. So vaccines have various different types of vaccinations. You've got the live attenuated, the killed virus, the protein subunit, the mRNA, and there are others in the works. These all have very different, these are all very different platforms. So like when people think of vaccines, they think of it as a singular unit. When it's like various different technologies, with each of those technologies having some implications in how they impact people. And one of the sad things about also the, the vaccination conversation in the United States, at least, has been that we do have a older platform vaccine in the form of Novavax, which is a protein subunit, and nobody knows about it, right? So people who have had issues with mRNA vaccines have actually had done better on Novavax.
2: Equally, that's a really good point. So they have Novavax. There's also a French vaccine called Valneva, which is a dead virus. It's an old-fashioned dead virus vaccine. Right, killed and active. Yeah. So then we
3: did have the AstraZeneca and then Johnson, which was the uh, adenovector virus.
2: Yeah, so slightly different there. And I just think that given that people don't appear to respond uniform to these vaccines, we should be having a much more tailored approach than this current blanket one. And I really want to pick up on Emmanuel's point about stress and being vaccinated when your body is under strain. It's a simple principle of vaccination. When you've got a child who is due the vaccine, if that child has a temperature, you, you hold off. You wait till they've recovered. Now, I was really sick with long COVID when I got the vaccine. And in hindsight, I probably only have myself to blame for it, but I was assuming that this long COVID was just a slow recovery, I would get better, I was going to get back to work, and therefore in preparation for that, I need to go get the vaccine. I I was under immense pressure from work to get vaccinated. And at that point, you had a mandate in the UK for healthcare workers, although that that got taken down uh, a bit later, too late for me. I actually sought multiple medical opinions on this. I went to an immunologist and Nobody could give me a clear answer. He said, well, you might get reinfected when actually it's quite common sense. You're sick, you wait. And, and I just think now, given my medical knowledge and my experience, if I ended up making a decision like that, I wonder how many other people who, who, whose bodies were under stress felt that they had to make that sort of decision to their detriment.
0: Yeah, how does a person make any sort of adequate risk assessment about any of this stuff? And you will essentially just given an answer, right? Uh, <laughs> you need to be in a fairly good, healthy yeah. state. Yeah, and I think also it, a lot of it comes down
2: to an understanding of how the vaccines act in, in, in how they produce the immunity. Now, in the context of COVID, long COVID, COVID vaccine one of the abnormalities in long COVID is clotting. It's not the only abnormality, but it is, it is probably the only thing that's been found universally in ed- anybody with long COVID whose blood has been be tested. It's these fibrin amyloid microclots that are resistant to breakdown. And because of the, the presence of these clots in your circulation, your tissues don't get enough of a blood supply, don't get enough of oxygen, and therefore you have multiple symptoms. Now, the same group discovered the microclot in patients with long COVID also found that if you introduce the spike protein, which is the main, main virulence factor of, of the virus, if you introduce the commercially available spike protein into a normal person's plasma, you get formation of the clots. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out that you could have the potential for formation from vaccination. And that has been demonstrated. And there is a study ongoing at the moment to try and further evaluate that. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that if somebody already has an illness like long COVID, then given that, we understand enough about its pathophysiology that we know the clotting is occurring. And given that the spike protein is triggering that and that obviously a lot of the vaccines rely on the production of spike protein for their action, I just think it points us towards really thinking very carefully about vaccinating people with long COVID or right. other similar illnesses. I'm not saying here that nobody with these illnesses should get vaccinated with the current vaccine. But what I am saying is that you need a much more tailor-made approach.
3: It's a higher risk population.
2: Absolutely. And certainly what I would say with confidence is that if somebody, and this might be a person who might not have non-COVID, if somebody has had a significant adverse reaction to a vaccine, and I'm not talking about a few flu symptoms that resolve in a day, somebody has had quite a significant persisting adverse reaction to a vaccine, then it makes sense that they should probably avoid that type of vaccine.
1: But that's not the messaging that we're getting. My rheumatologist told me in my first meeting, under no circumstances should you get an mRNA vaccine again. Like, she told me that. She already had patients with the same thing. Like, she knew.
3: Yeah, yeah. One of the major aspects of this polarization that we have is that we aren't able to get a good, we can't have a very good nuanced conversation about this, that it's 100% on one side or 100% on the other side. And the reality is just both Dr. Assad and Emmanuel have said about the honesty and having an honesty conversation is that it also allows, one, people to make better risk assessments, but two, it also allows for a safer deployment, understanding population choice, understanding risk factors. And without proper reporting, it's impossible to make good recommendations for these products. And especially, I think one of the things that I think a lot of people often miss is that we have a huge distrust of medicine in a lot of, and there's a lot of factors that go into this, but people are gen- generally wary of something new. And on that note, there is a reason that China did not go with the mRNA platform because they're like, it's new. We're mm-hmm. not going to fuck with anything new. We're going to go. They went with the killed virus, whole vaccine, kill whole killed whole virus vaccine platform. Um, Cuba has done the protein subunit platform, and I think they did that to reassure their population that they weren't, quote-unquote, being turned into an experiment.
2: Yes, I I just wanted to um, pick up on what you said about the polarization of this discussion. It's really interesting that when anybody comes forward as vaccine injured, they almost always... um, follow that statement with, but I'm not anti-vax. And sad that we should have to do that. And it just shows how, how binary this discussion has become, that you can't actually be somebody who is in the middle just trying to make sense of the information around you. You, you are either 100% vaccination at all costs, or you are totally anti-vax. And by the way, the anti-vax crowd the ones who are against vaccination in principle, vaccination as a strategy, you're never going to win them over. There's actually no point talking to them. It's not the same as somebody who's got a legitimate question about a new medicine, which is basically what this is. And uh, just for clarity, I do think that the way out of this might, might is vaccination. What we need is a new cultural vaccine that will stop transmission. Right. Because even though... the the variants in this current wave that certainly we think we're having in the UK, that don't seem to be killing as many people. We know that each COVID infection increases your cardiovascular risk. And we discussed it in my last appearance on this program. Reinfection is bad news all around. We just do not know what the long-term consequences are of this virus. And whatever we do know is not looking good. And obviously there is the misery of long COVID. So what we need is something that will stop people giving the virus to each other, and that it can only be a vaccine. There are the mitigations, obviously, there's airborne precautions, which have just become unnecessarily political. But something that is likely to be uncontroversial is a virus stopping transmission.
4: Right. Yeah. Is there any country in the world from which people are, or in which people are not suspicious? that these vaccines are more for big pharma profit than they are for public health, or that they trust their government enough so that if the government tells them to do something for their health, they don't suspect it. And therefore they have a nuanced, careful system of administrating these vaccines, knowing that every literal body is different and people have to respect the body that gets the vaccine is there anyone doing it that isn't suspicious
3: i think japan is probably doing it fairly at least better than a lot of the western countries in a sense japan didn't mandate the vaccines but they got a very high uptake they were also one of the earlier countries to openly discuss like vaccine myocarditis and recommend a more individualized application for the mRNA vaccines for men under, I believe, 40 or 35. So they were talking about that way early. And Japan has an interesting history because they stopped mandating vaccines after, I believe, they had an issue with a measles vaccine way back about 20. I I think it was more around 30 years ago. I can't remember the exact date. But they decided to go more on a open public health discussion rather than a mandate. And Japan has had a far higher vaccine uptake than the United States. And to a certain degree, I've talked to people on Twitter about it. And I've talked to a couple of doctors on on Japanese doctors on Twitter about it, and they said also Japan has a it's not a single payer universal care system, but we do have a pretty effective public public option system in terms of universal care in Japan. One of the things that the doctor said that was really interesting was he was like, oh, yeah, I think a lot of the positive uptake that we have, one, is the transparency that we do talk about issues when they arise. So they're like, oh, we do have a government that's looking out for us. But another thing, too, is he was just like, if somebody gets injured, they have confidence that they can get care without necessarily bankrupting themselves.
4: No, well, that certainly changes things also. Because you'd have to be in a place where government isn't suspect for hurting you and neither is Big Pharma to know how to operate here. And it sounds like their individual situations are respected and people's decisions are respected. So it doesn't have those dual threats from Big Pharma or the government that make people suspicious and not without cause.
1: Well, one thing I'll say, I mean, you can ask me questions is I think there is an element of ageism in the vaccine-induced myalgias going on, because if you Google COVID vaccine myositis, you'll get a lot of articles, including review articles of hundreds of cases of, of people who get this, but you won't find a single article in the media of yeah. reporting these articles are science articles. They're over the last year in particular, if you Google COVID vaccine myocarditis, you'll get a ton. And I think the difference is that the myocarditis is striking younger people and the I'm myalgia sorry. are striking people over 50. I'm 54. And it's usually over 50 who are having these reactions to the, 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 the reaction that I had. I even wrote to The Atlantic because I thought Atlantic Magazine had the best uh, coverage of the science, encouraging them to write an article about this and uh, never heard back from them.
3: That speaks to polarization ultimately, right? Also,
4: older people are not on the net as much talking about what's happening to them. That makes a big difference. Plus, we were talking about another thing that makes a difference is if it's a government mandate, whether people trust the government or whether people trust Big Pharma to do anything besides make money. And so they're caught between those two forces of distrust, at least in the United States, where both the government's collusion with Big Pharma and Big Pharma itself feel dangerous, enormous number of informed people.
2: Yeah, I did pick up on what Ikwe was saying about Japan. And it's fascinating that despite the very sort of open disclosure policy, not having a mandate, they had such a high uptake yeah it showed it sh- can be done
4: and it yeah. shows we trust health, perhaps even if they don't trust the government, they trust their health system
0: what do you right. think would what do you think would happen then if there was a vaccine developed or it may be being developed now that stops transmission have the maybe the u k and u s and maybe other countries perhaps shot themselves on the foot a bit like in asking the population to then get a vaccine that actually stops transmission, would you have as much high uptake? It, it might be almost pointless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. there, how many people will actually want to take it? I, think, I guess I'd be speculating. I don't know. On, on one level, you could argue
2: that you might be able to convince people that actually there are some benefits to this vaccine rather than this endless boosting with out-of-date vaccines. <laughs> so people might buy into that scientific argument but then equally, you do have this sort of distrust about, here we go, Big Pharma, again, uh, promising a panacea for for the pandemic. And we've been here before. Personally, there are a couple of things I would want to see if we were to have a completely different kind of vaccine. I would want to have a benevolent fund for those with who, who, who sustain a vaccine injury as a result of any new vaccine. Now, not every country has a government one. Somebody's got to pick pick, pick up those people. And I can't see companies like Pfizer going bankrupt if vaccine injury is indeed as rare as they claim because they have made billions and billions. So I think that's the least that should happen. And secondly, why do we have to have an embargo on documents? I don't know whether it's 75 years or 85 year embargo. I'm not being conspiratorial here. And as I've said, I do think vaccines are the way out of this. But I think these are the things that give rise to the suspicion and the hesitancy.
0: Mm-hmm. I think we need absolute transparency. Those are the two things that I'd certainly like to see. Yeah, Manuel, right. uh, what's your take on any of that stuff?
1: No, I, I agree. Totally agree with that. I don't know if we can find a totally safe vaccine. But one that prevents transmission, as has been discussed already on this show, would be really good. Yeah. I do now tend to think that they're promoting boosters of the old outdated spike proteins now because they've already made them and they don't want to lose the money. That's just capitalism, not conspiracy.
3: Right. I, I mean, the it. new ones are the new ones that are being rolled out. It's still behind It's still <laughs> very behind, but it no longer has the original Wuhan strain, I believe. But again, one of the, I think, major things about all these, I think in terms of if there was a sterilizing vaccine, because that's the kind that stops transmission, I think that was actually that opportunity was shot more by presenting when the original vaccine rolled out. They said that it would stop transmission. That wasn't necessarily the case, right? Because that's another thing is that I didn't hear this. It's going to stop transmission talk in other countries as nearly as much as the United States. But like the United States has always had a way of doing any kind of public messaging in the extremes, drug policy being extreme negative, this being extreme positive. And because it's also one of the major relationships between the government and the population in the United States is one that neither trusts each other. The government doesn't trust the people and the people also don't trust the government.
2: first of all, we had the same in the UK. We had this sort of, oh, this is gonna fix the problem narrative right from the beginning. One of the reasons I wonder whether this sort of boosting is being promoted, apart from obviously that this unused stock is where it it makes the government look like it's doing something because the airborne precautions are just too political. Um, Too cost? In in the short term, in the short term. In the short term. Yeah, I see no excuse for breathing dirty air. We wouldn't drink dirty water. And you're talking about a huge part of a generation lost productivity. And our children, God knows what these repeated hits are doing to their brains and their nervous systems and their hearts. Whatever we can see, it's not good. As I've mentioned before, if we were to mandate clean air in indoor spaces, and that's an admission that we got this wrong, and we should have been doing this from the beginning, this whole droplet nonsense was basically nonsense. Uh, So they didn't want to go there. What's the next best thing they can do? Boost yourself.
3: That's another thing is that Japan started offering CO2 monitors for less cost to businesses and whatnot to encourage ventilation. I know they part of the school closing, and I don't have confirmation on this, but um, the person that I was talking to on Twitter in Japan was talking about part of the school closing they did early in the uh, pandemic was to improve the ventilation system. So they've also been actually ahead in terms of some of the clean air aspects of public health. But one thing about the I think especially the United States is that we are a country that would sell out everything for the short term profit. If you look at our home or unhoused or homeless population, leaving people unhoused costs a lot more than housing them. Right right, in terms of like real money, in terms of the medical care, that emergency care that they end up requiring and et cetera. We still refuse to do it. The funny thing is that with COVID, they were expecting a huge casualty among the unhoused population, but because they were outdoors and in better ventilated spaces, they actually ended up dying. Wow. It, it, that that was I, I remember seeing one one report on that, uh, and it makes sense. It's an airborne infection, right? Right. Yeah. So people who spent most of their time outdoors might be a little bit more protected in that sense. But again, like clean air, just a lot of times people talk about like clean air, but clean air as a policy is something that pays dividends well past COVID.
2: The, the issue is that it has become, like I said, unnecessarily political because yes. it, it would be an acknowledgement of, of the, the errors of the policy. Now, my son has long COVID. He got, oh, after his third, yeah, he got it after his third infection and he got it from school. And But there is nothing I can do to influence the schools in this matter because the official public health narrative is that the variants are mild, do not test, do not stay at home unless you are so sick that you, that you physically can't leave the house. If you, that you could have a situation, and this is happening, where you feel like you've got COVID, you've bought your taxes slow, which obviously you have to buy them now, and you test positive. But if you feel well enough to go into work, and that could be as a doctor or as a teacher, or you could be a student, you can actually do that. In fact, you're encouraged to do that. Yeah. And the mind just buckles because we know what this virus can do. Right. But people are quite happy to buy into this narrative because obviously it's inconvenient. The pandemic's over. It's a nuisance. It's gone. We want it gone. We don't want to talk about it anymore. But we ignore it at our peril because I do not think our future generation is
0: going to forgive us.
4: I don't think so either, if we have any. Also, <laughs> yeah. the...
0: it's like a comedy. that will be dead, so it's fine. Gallows humor. Tough crowd.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like that dog in that burning room. This is fine. right? right? Yeah. United States, public school fits. funding depends on attendance. So you better get them in there or you'll run same out of money. Here.
2: Same here. <laughs> you get fined if you have an unauthorized accident.
4: Right, right. There is
2: no right. There is no such thing as an authorized absence, apart from if you have a medical appointment and that's it.
3: And that's like the crazy thing about kind of the clean air policy is that like I've had, I've seen like parents who have volunteered to make, of course, saw boxes is taking a box fan and attaching filters and taping off some of the air intake areas to. Clean the air in the cheapest way possible with easily found parts, not having to buy specific HEPA filters with specific filters, right? That cleans the air in, in pretty significant ways that would be really effective. And so when the build for Corsi, saw boxes became much more available online, there were a lot of parents that were like willing to actually spend their own money and make a bunch of them for their kids' schools. With yeah, their they, own money, and they were prevented. The schools were like, Oh no, we can't have you do this.
2: We've got that as well. It's was saying, guys, I'm really gonna good... have to jump off now.
0: Thank you. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you for facilitating this. Yeah, yeah, one oh, thank you. Thank for, you. Thank you for well, returning. Oh, and much. yeah, and I think we're all gonna have to call it quits there. Yeah, thank okay. you to, to everyone for their time.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you, everyone. Uh, thanks.